choice, competition, reducing costs. Those are the things that I want to see accomplished in this health reform bill. This is about the time I almost died. In a hospital bed in South Korea. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm David Kestenbaum in Washington, D.C. And I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt in New York. Today is Friday, August 21st. So Friday, maybe you're getting ready to go on vacation this weekend, or maybe you're going to spend your weekend reading economic papers on health care. For the staff of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, Friday just means another long day of failure. Yeah, another day of bank failure. Yeah, so those guys work incredibly hard, and especially on Fridays today, like almost every other Friday this year, at least one bank will probably fail. So the FDIC comes in, it takes over, it insures your deposits, and they do that out of something called the insurance fund. Right, and the insurance fund is a pool of money. The FDIC collects fees from all their banks, and they use that money to insure our deposits. And and David, back in when April, we talked to the FDIC chief operating officer about that insurance fund, and at that time, it was shrinking. Today, it is shrunk. Yep, our indicator today is $13 billion. That is the amount left in the fund. When we talked to him back in April, the estimates were that it had $35 billion, so from $35 billion down to $13 billion. And just for comparison, a year ago, it was almost $53 billion. Right, that is a huge difference. So the FDIC does have a, a big line of credit with the Treasury. If they need it, they're scrambling to find other ways of dealing with this. Well, you know, what they normally do is they raise fees on banks, but they've done that already a lot recently. Um, so they're also thinking about encouraging more financial institutions to take over failed banks. All right, on to simpler things like healthcare. <laughs> right. By the end of this podcast, we will have that solved too. David, why don't you start? Okay, so today we're going to be talking all about information. And as we've mentioned, one major reason so much money is wasted in the healthcare system is that there are all these information problems, what economists call information problems. So for a market to function well, you got to have information. In healthcare, there is asymmetric information. We talked about that when we compared your doctor to a mechanic. He or she has all the information and you as a patient don't have as much there's the problem that doctors themselves don't always know what drug or treatment is best. And then there's this information problem that, to me, just as the clueless patient, I'm particularly sympathetic to this one. When you're choosing a doctor, it can be really hard because, you know, you move to a new place and you don't know who's good and who's not good. And what you really want is a book or for you youngins out there, a website where you can go and look up and say, hmm, okay, Dr. Kestenbaum. He's very messy waiting room. His patients say he has copies of People magazine that are three years old. Oh, and uh, he did surgery on this guy's right knee when the problem was really on his left knee. Oh, my. Yeah, interesting you say that, Hannah, because uh, that website exists. Uh, I did a story for Morning Edition last week, and actually there was this phone call I really wished that I'd made, um, and we have that phone call for you today. Anyway, the, the website was created by a group called Consumers Checkbook, and the organization was started by this guy, Robert Krugoff. Well, I started Checkbook uh, because I was driving away from an auto repair shop one time, and uh, in fact, it was the third time I'd been there for the same repair. And I was about a quarter of a mile away, and I realized I'd be going back for a fourth time. And uh, so uh, I thought, well, it'd be good if there was some way to find out which are the good auto repair shops. <laughs> the, the car mechanics again. Yeah, so he fixed that information problem. He was moving on to the next one. 
and he wanted to rate doctors. But this is hard to figure out how to do because I don't know, you look one doctor and the doctor's patients are sicker, but maybe they're sicker because they're older. It's just very hard to gauge. But he thought, look, at least we can survey the patients. That will tell you something. You can ask, does your doctor listen well? And when your doctor explains something to you, does he or she make sure you understand? Those are fair questions to ask. So they tried to be very scientific about it. They got lists of patients and doctors from insurance companies who were also interested in finding out the results. They randomly selected patients, and they did a proper survey of patients in a few urban areas. So last month, they launched this website, which actually ranks doctors, and Krugoff showed me the list for the Kansas City area. So you can sort by overall rating. And... Um Who's on the top of the list there? For instance, uh, for instance this Dr. David uh, Graham um, has a 96 overall rating. And it says here that that is statistically significantly better than the average doctor in the community. Actually, it's way statistically significantly better. Um, and there are a lot of doctors up there in the, in the, in the 90, uh, 94, 96 range. And you had 100 people respond on Dr. David Graham. That particular doctor was rated by 100 people in a, in a confidential survey where we know those people saw that doctor. That doctor was rated by 100 people. David, when, when you did this story on the radio, we didn't actually hear from this top doctor. No, I was most interested in the, you know, more awkward bottom of the list, the worst ranked doctors and how they felt about it. Because, you know, the question is, is what is this really measuring? Does the list show anything? Is it useful information? And... Um, it, it seems like it might. The guy at the very bottom of the list had actually been disciplined for sexual misconduct and distributing controlled substances on a gratuitous basis. Um, one doctor near the bottom called me back to say she thought the survey results for her were misleading. But anyway, an editor here at NPR said to me, look, you should call that guy at the top of the list. So I did. Hi, Dr. Graham. Yes. Hello. So, David, I'm guessing the guy at the top of the list thinks surveys are a great idea, best idea ever. He was actually pretty measured. I'll say he does seem popular. The woman who answered the phone when I called his office, she said, oh, he's just this wonderful, wonderful man. And he told me that he hasn't been able to fit in any new patients for several years. What um, What's it like if I walk into your office? I mean, what, what do you try and do differently or well? Um... I don't. I think I. I try to do the best job I can for each person I see. Uh, I um, enjoy seeing people and enjoy catching up with them. And I, uh, until ten years ago, delivered babies as part of my practice. So it's really a treat to see those children grow up and become young adults and go on to have families themselves. And uh, you know, one of the joys of family practice is that opportunity to know extended families and see everybody from great-grandma down to the babies. So it, it's, um, it's a rewarding way to practice. What do you think about this idea of surveying patients about their doctors? Well, I guess I would ha- I'm biased, I guess. Uh, it seems like a pretty good idea. Uh, <laughs> I guess if I hadn't scored so well, I might have a different opinion on the subject, but I think that feedback is valuable. I mean, there are a lot of things that this doesn't measure. Like, I mean, you could be misdiagnosing everything, right? And your patients might still say, he's a great doctor. He listens. He's very personable. I don't disagree with you. I, I have uh, had family members in the past who have seen physicians that they thought the world of that I didn't think as highly of it as they did. Yeah, so so surveys don't capture everything. I actually saw an example of this when I was in San Diego this week. What was it? So 
I was there following these cardiologists around, um, and I, you know, I was with this one guy in particular, and just spending a day with him. He had six operations in one day, and he was putting stents in people's arteries. It's incredibly hard. You need a lot of skill to do this, and especially some of the procedures he was doing that morning were very complicated. Um, so he finishes one procedure, and he rushes out of the room to tell the family the woman's okay before he needs to run to his next procedure. And this family, they cry, and they hug him, and he says, yeah, so she'll just need to stay overnight, and tomorrow she'll... And they go, wait, doctor, we're here for our father, not not this lady. Hanek, you emailed me about this, and I thought this was something that had happened to the doctor like years and years ago, like a story. No, it ha- it happened while I was there, and he said it happens quite often. He's busy and he's moving around and he's doing this very hard work. Um, I just I was thinking about it with this rating stuff because this family may not have rated this doctor very well, even though the work that he was doing was really skilled and he did a good job of it. And their father was, by the way, okay. You know, Hannah, this is why I I don't try to pick a doctor when I need medical advice. I just call your mom. (laughs) Right. Does she tell you to take a bath? Is that what she advises? She, that's her favorite thing. That is her information problem. She thinks a bath fixes everything. All right. So usually more information is good for a market. It helps things function more efficiently. But now we have this really interesting story about how more information can actually be incredibly disruptive. Hannah, are you uh, are you online there? I am. All right. Go, go to this website, 23andMe.com. So this is a genetic testing website. You spit in a test tube and send the test tube in, and they do these genetic tests, and they can tell you whether you are predisposed to having Parkinson's disease. Oh, wow. Uh, Celiac disease, Crohn's disease, breast type cancer. 1 diabetes. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a whole list. So um, I mean, this is known. It's a seemingly straightforward thing, but it has potentially huge consequences for the entire economic structure of our healthcare system. So imagine you're the insurance company, right? You would love to have access to this information um, so that you could charge people more appropriate premiums. You know, if one person's likely to get sick, we charge you a little more. If not, then we charge you a little less. And that, of course, raises ethical issues, right? So imagine two brand new babies. They just breathe their first gulp of air. You're going to charge one more than the other just because she has bad genes. Right. So, I mean, there is a fix for that, though, right? You could just pass a law saying, hey, insurance companies, you can't discriminate based on genetic information. But it turns out that still does not solve the problem. So I, I talked to this guy, the Naked Economist, about this. Uh, his name is Charlie Whelan. He's the author of a book called The Naked Economist, Undressing the Dismal Science. And he says that even if you ban insurance companies from using this information, even if you fix that problem, you've still got another, that there is basically no way around. We have a different problem. Somebody still has access to the information, and it's you. And, of course, you can glean information about your likelihood of getting sick. You can take a home DNA test, which is now available. You can go to a private clinic or spa. You can cut an arrangement with your doctor, in which case you test yourself. You figure out some sense of your own likelihood of getting sick. And at that point, you will use the information rather than the insurance company to make the same kind of calculation. So if you're more likely to get sick with a really expensive disease, you're going to make absolutely that you're insured. You're going to choose the lowest possible deductible. You're going to do other things that probably would lead you to be more insured than somebody else. Conversely, if you take the test and it says, boy, you're going to be really healthy for a long time, you may decide, hey, I want to spend more on a new car. I'm not going to get insured. And as soon as our insurance pool 
is corrupted by the fact that people who are healthy begin to opt out, and people who, based on private information, know they're going to get sick opt in in an expensive way, then the insurance companies get swamped with people who are likely to be sick. And then the whole idea of insurance for healthcare just breaks down. It's already breaking down. This just speeds it up. It's breaking down because insurance only works well when we really have no idea who's going to be the unlucky one in advance. Fire insurance works pretty well because, with a few exceptions, we don't really know whether your your house is more likely to burn down than mine. Health insurance, we always knew your parents were a little less healthy than mine. Your dad may have had heart disease. So we were nibbling away at it. Once you present genetic information, then we've gone far beyond nibbling, and we have a pretty good idea who's likely to get sick, who's not. And at that point, the insurance system just doesn't look like fire insurance. It's amazing to think that suddenly something like genetic information can be a complete game changer and say, and, and essentially say this whole economic system, this whole model we have just will not work. It's a game changer, and the paradox here is it's so good for medicine and so bad for health insurance. So in terms of our health, it's probably quite good. In terms of our health care system, it's a disaster. Every technological step forward is also a more dangerous step for the insurance industry in that more and more and more risks become predictable. It's almost like you can buy your house, and when you open up the deed, it tells you whether or not it's going to burn down in 11 years. And as soon as that's the case, there's no longer any market for fire insurance. So we are marching in that direction, there's no doubt. Yeah, I just never, I'd never thought about it before. Yeah, no, it's a mess. So, Hannah, Whelan's conclusion is that if we have all this information, the only long-term solution is to, to mandate, to require that everyone else have insurance. Now, Charlie Whelan, he's an economist at the University of Chicago, and he says that like most economists, especially those of the Chicago school, his first instinct is to take a free market approach and say, hey, if you don't want to buy health insurance, that's fine. It's your choice. But he says, because all this new information is going to come, it is just inevitable. We need mandatory universal coverage. Yes. Well, first, a qualification, which is I'm at the University of Chicago, but I'm across the midway from the Department of Economics at the policy school, and we have to deal with some of the extant realities in life. But yes, there is no doubt that at a minimum, you're going to have to require insurance. It's so interesting, David, because this is basically the issue at the core of the Democrats' plan. We've got to cover the uninsured, but it's sort of more of an ethical argument. No one ever actually makes this economic argument. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting one to think about because it sort of argues for a, a government plan because if you have private plans that offer different levels of coverage, you've still got the same problem. People who know they're likely to get sick will take the expensive plan. People who are less likely to get sick will take the cheap plan. And Whelan says if you could you know, put all the politics aside, start from scratch, if he were born today and could express what he wanted, it would probably be a government plan for everybody. Okay, but... I in a way, I mean, don't we actually kind of have this already, like all of my 20-something friends who don't get health insurance just because they're young and healthy and they don't get it through their job? I mean, they're already making that choice not to have health insurance. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think the answer is that it is happening today, but in a small way. It obviously hasn't killed the insurance health insurance industry. And one explanation for why it isn't more of a problem it's just that the healthcare system is so kind of messed up. People aren't really doing this calculation in their heads. An employer, you know, gives you a choice of health plans. You think about it for two minutes, you check one box, and you're done. 
and that decision, that decision as a consumer is something that we're really interested in. So we've spent some time talking about doctors as economic agents, you know, that they're sort of half your mom, half salesman and part mechanic. Um, so we wanted to think about this in terms of patients, like who is a patient as an economic actor? What motivates our behavior? What motivates our spending? We put this question out at the end of the doctor show, and Mary Ellen G wrote us with this idea. She says, the patient is like a corporation that hopes it is too big to fail. So we make risky choices for our short-term gain, and we assume that when things get really bad, the public will have to step in and help us. And Michael V. wrote in to say, no, he thinks a patient is more like a student because once he's enrolled in school, he hands over his authority to the teacher who knows best how to train and teach him in a particular discipline. So he pays the school teacher, but he has very little say over how he's taught. Those are both on our blog, npr.org slash money. We would love to hear your ideas. Who or what does the patient most resemble, economically speaking? And we actually, we'd love to hear your beautiful voices telling this to us. So you can call us and leave your ideas. Who is the patient? 202-408-1271. And we will be listening. I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt. And I'm David Kestenbaum. Thank you for listening. The